And what's up, podcast people and soundtrack geniuses around the world? You're listening to The Soundcast, the official podcast of TrackSounds.com. And on this podcast, we talk all things film, television, and video game music. I am Christopher Coleman. And joining me for this virtual episode, in reality, is... The spoon isn't real. Oh, I'm uh, Dane Walker, composer, in parentheses. And I'm Eric Woods of Cinematic Sound Radio. Today is Sunday, March 17th, 2019, and this is episode 137, where we take a look back at Don Davis's original score for The Matrix on its 20th anniversary. You can find all episodes of The Soundcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. And you can send us your very valuable feedback to soundcast at tracksounds.com or our SpeakPipe widget where you can leave us a little voicemail or a big voicemail broken up into little bitty pieces or (laughs) hit us up on Twitter at Audio Soundcast or on Facebook. Well, welcome, Eric. And Dane. Good day. Hey. It is 20 years since The Matrix. Getting old. (laughs) Getting? (laughs) Older. Every anniversary like this just confirms it. Yeah. We is old. Yes. Um, But what a, a movie and what a soundtrack to reflect upon 20 years later. Um, they're not a whole lot of films and soundtracks you would do that with, but The Matrix is one of them. Uh, so we're going to take some time tonight to revisit uh, The Matrix and especially Don Davis's original score. Um, and I look forward to diving into that with both of you. I think um, we have some interesting things to, to talk about, and especially in having 20 years of experience with that score and seeing its impact. Um, so March 31st, uh, of this year is going to mark the 20, 20th anniversary of The Matrix. Um, 1999 is when it was released. Uh, it garnered an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes and 85 from the regular users. Metacritic gave it 73. I don't know what they're thinking. Um, it got 463 million worldwide, which is surprisingly low. I guess not so bad for back then. Um, like I said, the original release date was March 31. 1999 uh, by the Wachowskis. Um, The original soundtrack was released. Now, this is not the score, but the original soundtrack was released the day before it released. The movie released March 30th, 1999. And then the original score finally came in May of 1999. We got a 30-minute score from Verez. And then, of course, we got a wonderful deluxe edition in September of 2008. Uh, 78 minutes worth from both of them from Verez Sarah Band. If you remember... The DVD that came out in 1999 contained an isolated score track, one of the best DVD releases ever. I mean, if you remember it, it just had so many special features. They released awesome. the 
the the the matrix re, matrix revisited mm-hmm. which was all just special features about it i mean it was it was amazing i think that was the first isolated score track on a dvd that i had heard uh, that i can recall yeah, it was one of the first i think yeah it just but, it went all out yeah the first screening um according to don davis of the film was a- actually previewed and it had his demo work uh in in the film uh, and he finished recording the score at the end of February 1999. Of course, The Matrix was followed by two sequels, 2002, The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions. Um, and then there were a few games that, that were spawned. Uh, Enter the Matrix, The Flipping Matrix, The awesome. Path of Neo. Hmm? Enter the Matrix was awesome. Uh, I didn't finish it, but I do have it. If you had um, finished it, you would have popped out in uh, the movie. That was the best part of the I, ending. I would have popped out yeah, in the movie. Your character pops out into the Matrix Reloaded. So it ends mm. at that moment, and then you turn on the movie, and there you are. Okay. So you actually That's entered weird. the Matrix. It was very cool. That's really weird. It was okay. so cool. <laughs> um, there was the Matrix, the Path of Neo, and then there was the Matrix Online. Uh, and of course, there was the Animatrix, which was the kind of um, uh, the animated, animated. What is what is the like an anthology? The word I'm looking for anthology. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, that was also released in 2002. Also very cool. It was um, back in. I think it'd be a little violent for you, Dane. What? No. Given our unreleased discussion about Alita, <laughs> I wouldn't think it'd be something you, you well, enjoy. you know, I I don't recall anybody ending up with their brains and their eyeballs and their. Hands. Oh my god, bro! You need to revisit. Okay, the Animatrix. All right, there, there's. <laughs> I saw it once. Once it's been a long time. Okay, yeah, dig that one out. All right, um, there's two episodes in there that are. Whew, um, <laughs> Back in March of 2017, uh, you and I, Eric, had a little discussion because there was rumors about uh, a possible reboot of The Matrix. Uh, if you guys want to check that out, it was Soundcast Stereo episode 17, um, where people were talking about it being a possibility that that um, there would be a reboot of this franchise. And nothing is materialized as of yet of that. So that's fine. Um, we love the matrix as it is. Mm-hmm. So as we get into our discussion, let's talk a little bit about our first time experiences watching the matrix. Did both of you see it in the theater? Yes. No. Oh, you didn't see it in the theater. Nope. Wow. Wow. Um, so let me hear about your experience first, Dane, since yours well, is going to obviously be on video. Yeah. I saw it that fall on DVD. Um, okay. Uh, okay, so this is ironic, right? So um, this was my first rated R movie. I was 23. I, I, I've talked about it before. I grew up in a cult. So um, I had very strict rules, wasn't allowed to do this stuff, watch this stuff. And uh, I was in the cult still, and I just made the choice. Like a friend of mine who was also in the cult was like, dude, we got to watch this movie. It's awesome. So uh, <laughs> we watched it. and Rebellious uh, cult members. Yes. Well, we were kind of getting too old to really be in it. You know, you, you can reach a point with your age where you start to go, okay, I'm not sure this is really all it's cracked up to be. But anyway, um. But you can imagine the impact that had on me, like the blue pill, the red pill, the reality. What is your reality? What is all this stuff? Man, I, it was like, it was f- flat out 
blowing my mind. <laughs> and it really got me thinking. And I got really deep into the philosophical questions in the film. And uh, the phrase, I like the taste of steak has been, has been and like, I use it all the time. Like when somebody can't get rid of like systemic thinking, I just go, oh, he just likes this taste, taste of steak. <laughs> You're the only person I know that. Oh, it's well, that, that, that moment that like was so quintessential, right? He just like bites into the steak, Joey pants, you know, he's like, he bites into the steak and he's just like, I really love steak cut, you know, it's like, so <laughs> it really hems in on the real point. Like he doesn't want to break out of the matrix because he'd much rather partake in the, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking, the Epicurean pleasures of the, the false reality that it offers him. And, and what he asked for too, like, uh, I'll, I want to be an actor, someone important with lots of money. Like, yeah, clearly we're making a point with our movie. Right. But, um, yeah, yeah, this, this movie was, uh, it blew my mind, blew my mind and it's still stuck with me, uh, today. Eric, what about you? What was your first time experience? Yeah, I like? saw it in the theater and I clearly, remember it being one of the best theater experiences I've ever had because I mean, this was the year of star Wars. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so there was no expectation for mm -hmm. this movie because Phantom Menace was supposed to be the greatest thing ever. And so we had seen the trailers and thought, Oh, this looks pretty neat. And I used to go to the movies all the time back then. And a group of us went and I mean, I clearly remember where I was sitting in the theater mm -hmm. and just seeing that opening scene, I knew at that moment that I was seeing something truly special and just was completely immersed into this world. And it was like nothing I had ever experienced in the theater before where I said, Hey, you know what? This is something new. I've, I don't know what this is and I've never seen anything like it because I experienced star Wars on home video. I experienced Indiana Jones on home video I experienced back to the future on home video. Mm. And I eventually did see, you know, sequels to those movies in the theater, but I already knew what those worlds were and what right. was being established. Yeah. This was something completely fresh, even though the story isn't anything new. Um, but I was seeing things, I mean, special effects wise that I had never seen before. And, uh, I remember coming out of that in the, in the long discussion we had over dinner, there was eight of us and we just chatted about this movie for, for hours. And it had been a long time since, uh, I dissected a movie like that and just wanted to go see it again and again. And we did, and it was mm -hmm. just fantastic and i always love revisiting the film yeah agreed um i was telling dane uh, before we started recording it was a total just kind of uh you know let's go to the movies what's out you know um i'd seen the trailers and was like i don't know what that is it's it's out let's go see it and there's about four or five of us friends that went to see it and I'm like you, I remember where I was sitting. I remember the theater. I remember looking back and forth at my friends as we were watching. Like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing movie I've ever <laughs> seen. I mean, that first, the the, the Trinity Infinity yeah. uh, sequence, literal cheers. You yeah. know, when that sequence ends, we're like, what is go? This is going to be the best. 
And I mean, just not having any expectations and then having that kind of transcendent experience is really beyond a Star Wars in a way and a and the Lord of the Rings, which are my two other transcendent in theater film experiences. Because, well, I can't say that for Star Wars because I was seven or eight. I I didn't know how to have expectations (laughs) and I just went Mm -hmm. to it and it blew my mind. But like Lord of the Rings was like, Lord of the Rings is going to be amazing. Probably. This was just like, meh, you know, this kills some time and then your mind gets blown. So it was just on a whole nother level. Um, It was a game changer, obviously for cinema. And I knew it when I saw it. And when I saw it the second time, I was like, about 15 minutes in and I was thinking, I can't wait to see this again. <laughs> and I'm 15 <laughs> minutes into my second view. I was like, I can't wait to see this again. Yeah. Uh, I think I saw it four or five times in the theater at least. Yeah. And it was just, it just such a rare experience. And I don't know, I can't say I've had that experience since then, to be honest, T- to that degree on every level, visually, narratively philosophically musically i mean every level was just like man this is amazing you know what i mean mm-hmm. um i really can't say that i've had that as much as i love the lord of the rings films on most of those levels it wasn't quite that um i think the only other time that i ever had an experience like that afterwards was watching avatar um mm. because i hate 3d and this was really the first one where I was just so taken by the world. And um, I can understand why people went bananas and just wanted to stay in that world and didn't want to leave it. And I think that was the last time where I went, that was something new and that was something exciting. And I'd like to go see that again in a way that was just like, what did I just experience? And uh, yeah, it's, you're, but you're right. It doesn't happen all the time. And because I didn't, I didn't expect that with Avatar and I didn't expect it with the Matrix either. And the other thing is, it's the release date. It's March. Back in those days, that was the graveyard. Blockbuster, right? right it, was, yeah. it was like April or May. I think it was May. We call it May 2 4, but I think it's Memorial Day in the States where the summer movie season begins. And that's where all the big suckers are, are brought out. And then you have this in March and you're like, what? Why is it in March? I don't think that Warner Brothers had any expectations for this film either. And then it just blew up. Uh, and, uh, what a pleasant surprise. When did Phantom Menace come out? Was that in May, May. of that year? So yeah. I think yeah. they were just trying to get ahead of it. That's why they put Maybe. it there. Maybe. But do you really I think, don't think they, they had? knew what they had? Yeah, I don't think they knew what they had. I think this is going right. to be too heady for people. People aren't going to get it. They're I not going to be I think they may it. have had Sequels some confidence in it. Planned. Sequels were not planned. Like Neil doing what he did at the end of the movie was that was it. And even Davis said, you know, there even though we know that that the the you know there's certain themes that get developed further on in the, in the movies, the the three movies, he just composed this as a completely singular film, not knowing mm-hmm. it would turn into a franchise. And for all the uh, big Hollywood uh, producers that are listening to us right now, we would just like to say to you, please do that some more. <laughs> <laughs> Think outside the planning block. sequels. Yes. Too much money involved. Um, but I'm glad that they put everything into that movie. If that was the only one we got. Oh, yeah. It would, st- it would, nothing would change really Bullet in terms time. of that movie. Bullet time. What was the camera thing they did? What was the, what they call that? The camera that does the full turnaround? Remember that camera that was system? Bullet time. That was bullet time. Is that what, bullet, bullet time? time? 
Yeah, but yeah. it was all separate cameras. Right? Yeah, I know what it was, yeah. but I, I thought bullet time was frames, something else they were doing. But that was bullet no, that, time. That was yeah, bullet that was time. bullet time. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's something yeah. they developed. I think for just the thing. before starting to shoot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and for it to work that seamlessly, um, in that kind of early era of digital movie yeah. making. Is still pretty amazing. And, and, sure it not, I, I would, and it not be just a gimmick of, oh, watch this cool thing we can do. It is that, but it actually, there's a point to it right, within exactly. the narrative of the, yes. you know, of the thing, which right. that's yeah. what makes it so brilliant. Cause lots yeah. of people come up now with cool and create, now you can do anything with a camera, put it anywhere, anyhow. And it's just like, look what we can do. Well, but it really doesn't reflect. Like Swordfish you know. came out a few years later and they did a bullet time with the, uh, the exploding vest. Right. Yeah. And they did an entire bullet time. And I think it's a Joel silver um, produced movie anyway, but I mean, that made no, I mean, it's, it's cool, but it has no, nothing narratively. Yeah. Speaking. There was, <laughs> a, that right. shot. There was a TV show called Witchblade where they did that. Yeah. And it's just like, watch what we can do. Yeah. You saw this in the matrix. It's cool. Right. And yeah. it's like, yeah, it's cool in the matrix, but <laughs> it's not in your show. Um, you can say something, Dane. Oh, I was just going to say, watching it last night again, uh, I was surprised at how much it's, it holds up. Like, the effects mm-hmm. don't look old. Right. Yeah. It um, does hold up pretty well. You know, you don't I see... Mean, some of the effects in the, in, the, in the newer movies, like Re- Reloaded and Revolutions, look worse yeah. than the first movie. Yeah, by a long shot. Yeah. Well, but when they went to full CG characters, uh, yeah. you're doomed. Yes. <laughs> you're doomed as soon as you do that. <laughs> it's like, don't... I mean, this is... Coming up on 20 years ago for those two films, it's like, yeah. I mean, it was okay at the time, but even by the time it was out on, on Blu-ray or DVD, it was like, ooh, mm-hmm. it's <laughs> those look like Gumby characters. Yes. Before we get to Don Davis' score, um, I want to get your thoughts on the soundtrack that was released prior to the movie being released with um, all of the electronic songs, um, uh, metal songs on there. What, what was your guys' experience with with that? Did you get that? Did you buy the soundtrack? Did you listen to the soundtrack? Did you care about the soundtrack? Nope. I forget every time like I watch this movie that there was a separate soundtrack and that these songs played some sort of role in the, <laughs> in the narrative. I keep, really wow, forget, I keep forgetting. Really? You brought it up today in the notes and I'm like, Oh, right. I, but I forgot. I, I don't, uh, it's not like a back to the future type of moment for wow, me. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't really feel the, uh, I don't really, it's been a while since I watched the movie. I think it's been about three or four months. So I can't remember how they played in the narrative with the exception of that last shot. So I don't remember whether there are certain scenes with just songs or, or, or not. So I don't know, but it never made an impact on me. I don't have that soundtrack. I don't have that version at all. Amazing. It was one of the few that I immediately bought soundtracks with just songs on them, not the score. I was just like, I have to own that. Hmm. Um, 
it exposed me to to bands that I'd never heard of before. And I mean, they were old and I'd never, I'd never heard of Propeller Heads. Um, I'd never heard of um, Rob Dugan. Yeah. But when I heard their music, I was like, I must own that. And so it's interesting that it made no impact on you because it made it made a huge impact on me, like the dojo fight. Um, oh, yeah. I think that's a Rob Dugan track in there. Uh, the propeller heads um, during the 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 building heist or not the heist, but, you know, when they break into the building, when mm-hmm. they're fighting and all of that, that's the propeller heads track uh, spy break. I mean, really key sequences used those use that used those songs hmm. and so I, I feel like it's if not the best one of the best mergers of songs and score to give you for me a complete feeling of what the matrix is okay i can't take one or the other I have to have them both to hmm. really get the full full vibe of of the matrix yeah, what, I, what was I, your th- Go sorry ahead. I, I just feel the mesh of the like the techno or orchestral work better in the in the subsequent two movies um they felt more <laughs> organic and i think it's because davis worked with them yeah directly but i again i i have no recollection of of the songs i really hmm. don't I, I, i'll have to go listen to the album i mean it's it's intriguing so yeah um yeah i would i would recommend it and yeah. see how you how you come through it um uh, you know the 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 i forget which song it is when the telephone's ringing and all of the main heroes are you know it's a circular shot and the phone's ringing, they're all going in one at a time. I mean, that, I, I forget which song was that. Uh, uh, there's just these moments that were just like, I remember Bob Mahan was like, oh my gosh, this song, what is this song? You know, I was so engrossed into this film, and the songs had a lot to do with it, more than more than average. Did you have a reaction to the, the songs at all, Dane? Yeah, I don't remember the songs in the film, like, but I... I remember the beats, like the mm-hmm. grooves in them. Um, mm-hmm. Those got my attention. Um, I've never bought the album or anything, but I just dug like that grunge rock metal uh, sound, you know. Um, and I show my ignorance if it wasn't grunge rock metal. That's what I would call grunge rock metal to me. But <laughs> <laughs> I did. I dug it. I was like, this. These beats are amazing. These grooves are amazing. Um, but I didn't ever. The, the Matrix is here. Um, I Apologies. didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea you had an accordion. Is that Eric. like you disagree? <laughs> I disagree with you. Oh, oh man. So, <laughs> I'm trying, trying to play a little that. bit of. Oh, yeah, man. No. no. Oh, I got to recreate this grunge rock metal with my accordion. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I loved the beats, but uh, I never did buy the album. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. I, it, it was such a key part of it, of the experience for me. Um, it's interesting that it didn't really register for you too much. Um, so we won't belabor that point much further. Let's get on to Don Davis's uh, score.
Eric, what was your, what was your, did you have an in, in theater, in film experience with the score? Did you take note of it at the time you were watching the film? Yeah. I, uh, I heard, I think all of us did. We heard the, the score in the film first, um, because there was no, there was no sound, yeah, there was no release, which, uh, was bizarre. And, uh, if what I can recall, there was no score album being planned um, until the film essentially blew up and Rez put up the cash to release mm-hmm. one of their, I mean, it's, it's just the classic 30 minutes, 30 minute album. I mean, <laughs> it just doesn't do the score justice. It's great to have the music. Um, right. Like, come on. I love it. That's <laughs> what I was listening it, to you know, all weekend. It does play well on 30 minutes, but there's just, there's a lot oh, of missing. This is one score, actually an entire series of scores that hold up incredibly well sure. in complete yeah. form. And um, and I I don't know. I mean, if Verez didn't come to the rescue, it's just a, who would have released the score? I mean, that's what Verez used back to then. Do, yeah, right. They would, they would rescue tiny little scores, and like if they had a sniff that soundtrack fans wanted to hear it, they'd be like, "All right, great, we're gonna put up the dough. We'll get the." 30 minute album out and there you go here's here's some music so many albums like that in their catalog um that you're just like wow only verez in the 90s would have done that so um like i think i said it earlier like the the, like the film the score was like nothing i'd ever heard before and and my exposure to um minimalist music was was really limited at the time i mean i knew who philip glass was but um, after this movie, again, not being able to listen to the soundtrack, you know, I looked for anything that sounded similar. And of course, coming across John Adams mm-hmm. um, was just yep. a life-changing experience for me. Because essentially, that's the Matrix in the concert hall. And, and Don Davis just, I'm not going to say st- stole, but he just lifted so many ideas and brought all that into the score and it and produced something that we really had never heard before. I mean, like I said, Philip Glass was doing minimalism, but this is post-minimalism in John Ad- in John Adams' pretty distinct style. And, you know, Don Davis was sort of exploring some of that in his early scores and actually in some of the, the orchestrations that he was doing with James Horner, but he never really got a chance to do a fully realized kind of dissonant avant-garde postmodern you know atonal um minimalist score and this really is i think one of the i'm not gonna say it's one of the first but it's one of those ones where it's like it's it it really isn't melodic i mean that's not the first thing that you get out of this right although there are themes and motifs yep but it's, it's really that first one that i appreciated then i can get into stuff like elliot goldenthal and his work on on alien and various other scores of that nature. So I was just, it, it received an amazing mix and I'm, and I'm just listening to it. And I was like, I couldn't believe what I was, what I was, uh, what I was witnessing, not only on screen, but, but sonically. So, um, and it was an interesting, like I said, I, I, I again, I didn't notice the songs. I noticed some of the techno, but I didn't know that that wasn't Don Davis. So mm. maybe going back to what we were saying before, I don't know who wrote those songs. I just felt like it was, um, it was organically placed in. It didn't seem mm-hmm. like it was distracting. It all worked together. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
but it's just, uh, I mean, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff out here and I just don't <laughs> want to go on and on, but it's, uh, it was a, no, yeah, a mind bending experience with the film and hearing music of this sort. And I was totally, uh, flabbergasted that it didn't receive an Academy Award nomination. Yeah. It's just, this is, this is it. This is, this is something new. It's not just new for the sake of being new. You know, new is great. No, it it's new, but it's great. It works so well. It's a game changer. And how they didn't recognize it when this film received a whole pile of like secondary Academy Award nominations mm-hmm. and wins. Mm-hmm. This is the score that they just kind of went, nope. Uh, yeah. It's bizarre, but it was, it just still remains one of my favorite scores of all time. Dan, what about you in your video experience? Did the score stand out to you that first time you saw it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember thinking when I was watching it, I have to know who did this um, because I wanted to get it. And uh, as I recall, I was able to find a used copy of the score album at uh, at Cheapo, which was I was living in Minnesota at the time. uh, And there was a big UCD store down the street from my apartment. I went in there and found it um, and listened to it a lot. yeah, I it I think what's so significant about it is just that uh as Eric's already said, is so much minimalism and yet so much intelligence behind what he did. Um and I kind of have to I have to thank a good friend of mine, Tim Rodier, who runs a publishing company out of LA called Omni Music Publishing, and he has published the fully notated uh conductor score for the whole film. So you can uh you can look and see what what each part of the orchestra is playing and doing all that. And so I, I was studying that a little bit. I've, I've owned it for a while, but um, was studying that a little is bit. still available? I think so. Yeah. If you go to omnimusicpublishing.com, uh, I think is their, their thing. Um, but you know, it's, it's mind bending because there's, there's so much stuff in there that, that the orchestra is doing. And, you know, the piano parts have like, play this with mallets, uh, put wood blocks in here, do this, do that, hit it with your, you know, I mean, all this kind of stuff. And then like, it's got little weird writing for the strings, like, you know, slur all these notes together and slide up on the, you know, just crazy, crazy stuff that's happening. But it all in the, in the context of the film is just absolutely amazing. One of the things that I think is so um, that everybody takes away is that Don Davis matrix horns thing right? Like that just became almost cliche. Now it's like subconsciously, every film has that in it, whether they're wanting to or not. Right. Um, but what was so unique about it in, in the film, um, was he used that to, to kind of communicate what was going on in the movie. So that, that first chord you hear right at the beginning over the main, t- uh, the, the WB logo is you hear the horn section play an E minor triad and then follows by the trumpets playing a C major triad. And then the horns come back in with that E minor triad and then, the, and you just keep going back and forth, back and forth. And that becomes the whole thing. But what it does is to your ear, it says, well, what key am I in? So it suggests that it's in multiple keys which is what the movie's doing. Which reality am I in, right? Like going back and forth, which is a brilliant move. And then um, he does that rhythmically too. There's there's a lot of like, um, you know, little little rips that are going on. But he writes them, it's in 4-4, but there's only seven eighths of the little riff. So you can't figure out, am I in 4-4 or am I in seven eighths? 
You know, so you're constantly asking these questions. And then the beauty of it is at the, at the moment that Neo, you know, after Trinity kisses him and he comes back and, and he comes back to life and now he figures out who he is at that moment, it gets really tonal and you get that like, uh, you know, Richard Strauss also Sprock Zarathustra, that very Germanic rom- romantic sound comes in and this big, and all of a sudden all of that merges together and you know what key you're in and you know what's happening and it's all come together and it's just it, everything that he laid out musically accompanies the whole concept of the philosophy of the film and what's happening so perfectly uh, without being a bit distracting mm-hmm. from the movie. You know, you're never yeah. going, oh, that's such a beautiful lyrical tune. You know, that never <laughs> happens in this. You know, and which you've got I think, all that in your first viewing. Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> no, and just in studying it afterwards, because sure. it's like this isn't, you know, this isn't your 80s, 90s adventure score. Right. And yet it's it's so your 80s, 90s adventure score, right? Like it still follows the same sort of pattern and mode. It's, it's not, um, it's not your... The minimalism isn't your, we're doing a science math genius movie now, so we're going to use our minimalism. It's not that kind of minimalism. It's like Mm -hmm. still using the orchestra of the adventure film score of the 80s Mm -hmm. and 90s, but doing just epic, big, you know. uh, It's a big minimalist score. Yeah, it's huge. Um, Yeah. And and John (laughs) Adams is the guy to, you know, to to tie to this. I mean, I think minimalism is a method. Not necessarily, a, we, we call it a style or a genre, but it's really a method. And so a lot of times you can, everybody can sound alike, but you know, the, the, um, the harmony layer is, um, I mean, it's, it's, that's it, <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that's it. Um, and, uh, the, the two fanfares, yeah. uh, the, uh, the one that I keep going back to, and it's just, it is totally the matrix is the short ride and fast machine, right. which is just one of the, <laughs> the greatest pieces of music i've ever heard and what you got to do is, and if nobody's ever seen it being performed oh yeah watching it's amazing well it's one of the most difficult mm-hmm. pieces of music to conduct with all the weird time signatures and all that sort of stuff and if you watch a conductor conduct it you're wondering oh my god like how is the orchestra following because the timings are so wacky yeah and uh especially with the, the like the, that off time um clicking on the the wooden block it's bonkers <laughs> and it, it really is but it's it, but it, you know what it follows kind of that that style that Davis committed to this film where everything is sort of very kind of chaotic and there's a little bit of, a lot of chaos and not everything is really flowing and working together until you get to the fanfare right at the end of the piece mm-hmm. and then it becomes very um, yeah melodic uh, tonal and it's just like I said it's, it's the matrix all kind of like wrapped into this four minute piece i mean the whole uh his whole catalog adam's whole catalog is just incredible it's not just matrix but you know if you listen to that and uh and some of the other pieces it's it's you can just tell where davis is, is getting the ideas from what i also find interesting and i only found about today was that davis scored this film and only this film um in the series as a horror movie uh, mm-hmm. or as a horror score um, because Neo has no idea what's going on and everything's just yeah. freaking him out. And he didn't apply that type of scoring to Reloaded or, or Revolutions. Oh, weird. Which yeah. I thought was very interesting. So this yeah. comes off more um, like a, a terrifying horror score than anything more like the other ones, which are a little bit more um, kind of fun. 
Well, it's interesting you saying that is I do recall, you know, when I saw the trailer, I was like, it felt like there were horror elements in it. And I guess there are actually. Oh, totally. They're just, the belly they're button just, thing. Yeah, that and the, the, the whole, mouth. from the time that he takes the pill mm. till the time he um, goes through that whole, pro, you know, they he wakes up and they find him and they pull him up into the Nebuchadnezzar. All of that, I guess it was Nebuchadnezzar. Yep. Um, all of that, that whole sequence, I was exhausted <laughs> by the end of it. I was wrung out uh, because, I mean, it just went, who knew where this thing was going to go? Right. Certainly didn't think it was going there. And, you know, when he wakes up and he looks and surveys the land and that dissonant choir and all of, I mean, it's like Leggetti type stuff. It was just like, what the heck? I mean, it was so overwhelming. And those are horrific kind of scenes, you know? And so it makes sense. You know, the matrix, what, well, the real world was horrific um, for him. That's right. And so I remember seeing those little shots, some of those seeds of that in the trailer. I was like, is this a horror movie? What is this thing? You know, because that wouldn't have been my first choice to to go and see if that's what it was. Mm. Um, but definitely had those horror elements that you're right. The 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 second and third really didn't. No. Um, and you lose and you lose that. I mean, you get the choir and all that, but it's all harmonic and beautiful and powerful and all of that. But it's not not that not that dissonant stuff, right. you know, there's not really much of a mystery to the matrix anymore. No, there isn't. Right. Which, you know, I kind of, you know, you were talking about earlier, Eric, how in se- the second and third reloaded in revolutions, you know, you had Juno reactor working with Don Davis in reloaded. And I don't know if Juno reactor was in, uh, working on revolutions, but definitely reloaded. And you got that blend of that electronica plus Davis together, yeah. which I like what they did, but I don't like the end result as much as I like the mix of the the songs they chose in the first one with Don Davis' score because it felt like, okay, The Matrix gets the Electronica songs and the real world gets more of the... Well, no, I guess The, I guess the Matrix got his score too. It, it just felt like a better balance and it made me kind of wish that I wish the matrix had been part three of a trilogy to where maybe we had one about, um, or two of them about Trinity and, uh, Morpheus trying to find Neo to where you can then have those electronica songs Mm. and Davis's score. And, and then you have the matrix, which is the culmination of that. And then you move on to these other ones, which you lose you, the matrix, not a mystery anymore. So now you don't have that kind of music anymore both song-wise and then the dissonant, horrific stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I, when I first saw it, I really didn't, I was so overwhelmed by the experience as a whole, I don't think I appreciated Davis's score as much um, then. It wasn't until after I got the score, well, after I saw it a few more times, and I was like, oh, man, this music's amazing. But it took me a while to really latch on to it because it was so different. Um, and, and two, when you think about in May of that year, everything was building up to the Phantom Menace. That's mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. anyone was talking about right. and was excited about. We're excited about John Williams, new score, all of this. And so this just kind of slid in there and it was just like, oh, this surprise, you know, it's just kind of a surprise for everybody. But at least my mind back then, I was so attuned to John Williams, James, James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith, those, these folks and what they were producing at that time. 
that I wasn't really, I just, my mind wasn't ready to grab hold of what Don Davis was laying down. I wasn't mature enough musically to appreciate it until I saw it a few times and then got the score. Um, but now, of course, I've come to love it um, and and hopefully appreciate a little bit more of the complexity uh, that he was, that he pulled off in that particular score. Mm-hmm. Um, any other thoughts about Davis's score? I mean, you know, obviously there's whole books <laughs> and dissertations um, written about the film and the score. Um, I just want to open up for more thoughts from you guys. Well, I'm just curious, you know, at the time, did you know who Don Davis was? Cause he was mainly, I mean, he had worked on a few things. I mean, you know, there's Warriors Virtue. Virtue, yeah. There was Bound. Bound. He there did some TV work. But mostly he was orchestrating for James Horner and some other people. But, I mean, I think this was the first time I was ever exposed yeah, to to for sure. who he was. And that's what caught me off guard. I'm like, Don Davis this is a new guy. I mean, he's pretty amazing. And then when you when you, when you you do check out his back catalog, um, like I said, a lot of the, the stuff that he was writing in those scores do have sim- similar traits to what he was eventually going to write in uh in the matrix but i mean were any of you no in fact uh, no idea in fact uh i got um i was uh, at berkeley and i had uh uh cayman's music editor for my as a professor so i went and pulled out all my cayman albums and to double check when did eric do these and when did he do these you know so i could get him to sign them all and uh (laughs) and uh I, i was shocked to see that don davis was one of the orchestrators on prince of thieves Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's how far yeah, back he that. went. And I was like, what? The yeah. Matrix guy was orchestrating this? Yeah. What? And then I also I mean, realized, no doubt. I also no realized doubt one of my mind. other professors was one of the orchestrators on that, Richard Davis. But uh, yeah, like he goes back that far. Um, hmm. yeah, it's amazing no to idea. hear his influence now on, okay, see, it's, it's whether it's his influence or whether the composers that he was working with were influencing him. Because if you listen to the climatic action music from Prince of Thieves, I mean, you could tell that's Don Davis or it's him either ghostwriting or that's his orchestration based on some very, you know, thinly written sketch by Cayman. Because, I mean, he was running out of time and he had very little time on Prince Mm -hmm. of Thieves Mm -hmm. to write that score. And I don't think that it's a secret that many composers are working on that one. I mean, look at the orchestra list. It's insane. But, I mean, you listen to... You know, stuff like there's there's cues in the page master that don't sound anything like James Warner, but they do sound like Don Davis. Um, you, you, you listen to other scores that he he helped orchestrate, and you can tell there's just little cues here and there that, I mean, I even think he mentions that in the Matrix booklet that, you know, composers like James Horner were very open to new ideas. And so if that an orchestrator came to him and said, hey, you know what, what about doing this and this and this? Horner was like, yeah, okay, fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. Then let's add that into the score. And so I guess the, so again, it's, it's whether the, the composers that Davis was working with were influencing him or whether he already had, you know, this particular sound in his head and he was influencing composers that he was working with. But you can definitely hear um, Don Davis's kind of musical footprint in other composers' scores. It's a symbiotic relationship for sure. I mean, it's always back and forth, back and forth. So it's probably both, you know, mm-hmm. them influencing him, him influencing them for sure. Is that typically how it is where well, it depends on are open? It depends on who you're working with. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Um, sure. 
you know. Sure. But I mean, a good a good composer who's leading his team is going to be open because he knows he's got to get the job done, and a good idea might be the key to unlocking the door. So yeah. I think we all feel the same. I'll ask the question anyway. You feel like his score, specifically for The Matrix, not thinking about the other two so much, does it still hold up today? And and why do you think it does? Yeah, I, I listened to it again today. And it's just, it's timeless music. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm, again, I'm thinking back to, to John Adams and when he was writing his post-minimalist music, and that was 1970s. And, you know, he's taking these ideas from the 1970s and what is, I mean, quite modern uh, music for the classical world and incorporating it into this, you know, late 90s movie. But it still holds up, I mean, very well today. And, um, you know, I think some of the techno elements, um, I guess maybe I'm, I'm mentioning maybe Reloaded and Revolutions might not hold up as well. But um, I think stuff like, uh, the hotel heist music that he wrote, yeah. I think, is one of the most memorable things he's ever done, and it's absolutely. still like just absolutely uh, fantastic musical storytelling. Um, but I, I do like David Davis's collaboration with with various electronic artists. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, although thinking back to it, I think Michael Kamen got a jump start on this sort of trend with Event Horizon a few years earlier when he collaborated with Orbital uh, on that score. If you haven't listened to that. It's crazy good. And it's a horror score as well, right? Written with that kind of techno dance, electronic sound matching with a giant symphony orchestra. Um, And another score you might want to listen to, uh, if you want to get an idea of what the soundscape was like and and where composers were going, listen to Joel McNeely's Soldier. Oh, yeah. If there's any other composer that could have worked in The Matrix, it's Joel McNeely and listen to what he did in soldier. It's crazy. And it's, hmm. it's, it's not similar music, but there's certain ideas um, that he utilized in that score, which I think came out a year previous to the matrix um, that Joel McNeely would have been a perfect choice for this. But um, I think this is just, it's, it all holds up. It's, it's just great musical storytelling. And like, like Dane said, it all kind of, comes right down to the end there's there's a purpose to it all it all means something mm-hmm. and and when you get to that like you said that big straussian ending at the end and that's the and i was trying to think of the composer who it is is it, is it wagner <laughs> or, but it, it was strauss and like yeah that's it you know those big heroic horns when right. neo is finally you know the the jedi of the matrix <laughs> it's <laughs> it, you know it's it's so good and you know what and 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 i think davis also helps sell keanu reeves's performance because oh yeah it could totally come off as utter cheese ball but davis <laughs> yeah. really grounded it and made us believe that keanu reeves was this superhero Mm-hmm. And and could do what he does and the little weird actions that he was doing in the film, which could <laughs> look totally ridiculous with anything else behind it. I think yeah. Davis really nailed it and helped Keanu um, sell the performance. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It it's hard to try to envision the Matrix with any other type of score. Um, yeah, it would just be s- such a different experience. I think had it gone with some 
more contemporary electronic feel, you know, for that specific era, you know, like a Graham Ravel type of score or <laughs> something. You know, it would just, I, I think it would have lost a lot of gravitas. Yeah. Um, you know, not only that, it would have lost its, uh, the, the philosophical intellectual elements of the film would have been completely disrespected. Hmm. Like you, it might, you might've thought about it at that moment, but it wouldn't be so heavy. Like the, the, by doing what they did when you leave the theater and you can watch it now, like I watched, you know, I watched it yesterday and today it, it, the whole depth of the film is preserved because they didn't do something that was current. It's timeless. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, by having a score that, 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 can be listened to at any time and still stands alone as this uh, great turning point, I, I think in, in scoring, um, you know, the, the film itself doesn't lose its integrity. Yeah. Right. And you would expect, or I would have expected it being as big of a hit as it was, obviously it, it helped Don Davis's career immensely. I mean, he went on to do Jurassic park three and many other things, but, you didn't see a mass adoption of that type of music for film scores uh, like you did with John Williams and Star Wars. Right. Sure. Everybody wanted to do Star Wars right. music, right? I think you also, that surprises I mean, me a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I also th- thought that we would have had very similar scores like Lord of the Rings. And I always thought Lord of the True. Rings was going to be, you know, the Star Wars of its generation where finally the the big, you know, leitmotivic, orchestral score is going to come back into fashion and it really didn't. That's why star Wars is such a, it's such an interesting moment in time. Um, for film and film music, mm-hmm. um, especially film music, especially because the trend then was, um, you know, going, coming up to 77 was, was sort of like this weird, um, yeah. atonal anti orchestral and was going that mm-hmm. way. And I, and I, I think we talked about this before. There's, there's a, a bunch of people, film music fans from kind of like those retro, years in the seventies that are pissed at John Williams <laughs> for basically stalling that, that trend and, and, and just going back and then bringing your orchestral score in and, and then you couldn't write those weird scores. And I just, and you're thinking now in the, in the 1990s and even like with Lord of the Rings, you would think that one of them would have, would have, would have had some sort of influence over everything. Like, you know, Hey, we want, everything's got to be Lord of the Rings or everything's got to be the matrix. And it never worked out that way. And it's so, yeah. it's so bizarre. The, the hard one thing, to write that stuff. Well, it is hard <laughs> to write that stuff, but it also <laughs> yeah. is, it, it's also typecast, right? So if you do a matrix type score, I mean, think about <laughs> Ralph breaks the internet, right? Like they get launched through the internet and what do we hear? Here comes the Don Davis horns, right? Like right. they're, you know, it's, it, it, it's so quintessential to the film that like, if you do it outside of it, it's almost a parody, even though it is showing up those stylistic horns and that, that sort of methodology is showing up. You can't really do that sound without everybody going, Oh, that's the matrix. You know, right. it doesn't really work. And the same yeah. with Lord of the Rings, like that big, um, you know, the uh, Bruckner style orchestra with the, with the way that that Howard Shore wrote that. You can't do that in any other film again without somebody going, oh, this is a dark fantasy film. You know what I mean? Like it, it sticks in the genre it was in, unfortunately, um, which is kind of why like the whole, you know, 
only John Williams gets to write John Williams now. You know what I mean? Like nobody else mm-hmm. is uh, John Powell is, but you know, nobody's really getting to do that kind of sound anymore because it's so quintessential to the type of film that it belongs with, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it, it, back then though, like I said, back in the seventies, like John Williams was still able to incorporate like fully symphonic scores for everything from, you know, like the fury, Sure. Which again, very, very Bernard Herman, but I mean, to, to the, to the Superman movies, to Heartbeeps, to like even Monsignor, it, there's just some just big flourish, mm-hmm. uh, symphonic writing, uh, during that time. And he was able to, he was able to do that. And then, uh, you know, like, then you had like the, the Contis and the Horners and right. the Goldsmiths that were able to, to truly ad- accept and adapt that way of scoring and, and bring that back. It just, it, it, it just, it, it's the symphony orchestra and no matter how, like, I'm not expecting anybody to copy Don Davis or copy Howard Shore, but just, it was just, you, you're just like referring to the, time. you're just referring to bringing the orchestra back. Yeah. 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 And, and I thought I that, 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 that this time, like the, the, even, even with the, you know, the rebirth of star Wars would have had some sort of, um, you know, resurgence of, of the, the classic symphonic score. And I don't think we, I don't think we got it. I mean, there were some I wonder. I mean, it was, I wonder there's things that are there. Like, I mean, Disney was doing it like James Newton Howard at the time. Um, what he was, was he doing the Atlantis, dinosaur dinosaur? And yeah, that was all done at that time, but it, it was that's 2000. I think. Yeah. I just don't know whether, um, I wonder if now it's, it's one, you know, uh, writing that kind of music as I kind of interjected real quick is hard mm-hmm. and takes lots of time. And then the expense that's, yeah. That's the biggest thing. A symphony orchestra right. now. It's just that's it's the biggest so thing. expensive to do. You know. Well, the the other thing uh, that I think that goes into this, which I was going to mention earlier, is that 1999 for me it it changed cinema as a whole. I mean, Eric, you know this from an editing standpoint, from a music standpoint, it did too. The computer took over. Oh, totally. you know, with Phantom Menace coming out and the Matrix coming out, it was the, a new dawn, a new day. Look what we can do. You know, people started shooting with all digital cameras. They never turned the camera off. They could cut in. They could cut your face out of one outtake that you had and put it in an intake. You know, I mean, like all this stuff is going on and they can edit right up to the moment of release. Well, you can't score a symphony orchestra right up to the moment of release. Mm hmm. So to to get that kind of flexibility back, believe it or not, minim, you know Bruce Broughton in an interview I heard last year said minimalism is kind of taking over scoring, and I don't think he necessarily means just pure minimalistic style, but the the kind of the sequential ideas of minimalism are taking over because you can cut it. You know, right. you can take, you can have a sec, you can kind of Lego block your score together sequentially and that's a much easier way to handle oh crap they just cut out you know five seconds over here and 10 seconds over here and we already recorded that you know how am i going to fix that it a music editor fixing that it goes way quicker when it's a sequential type of music rather than we're developing a big theme here and then we're going to have this thing happen here and oh no that fanfare got cut out you know, that's really hard to fix on the mm. scoring stage, which is why you know, John that's Williams for for the, the last two Star Wars films has written over three hours of music to give them options, mm. you know, um, mm-hmm. and that that's, that's the point. It's just a different era because of the computer. And that's changing the way the musician, you know, the composer can approach it because, you know, right up to the release, you could get a, a te- wait, you know, what we cut out the third act. What? 
You know, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's, it's that dramatic. And, uh, you know, it's a shame actually. I mean, it's a shame. It It is. It, it, yeah, makes them, it enables them to tweak the film right up to release, but, but it, it, it really hampers some other, (laughs) some other parts Mm -hmm. that we love in particular so much. Um, well, as we're kind of wrapping up just as a kind of what if scenario, um, if the Matrix hadn't come out in 1999 and instead it was coming out on March 31st, 2019, what do you think that score would sound like, Dane? Well, I honestly think it would sound kind of the same, <laughs> to be honest. Do you really? Yeah, I really do. I don't think – I mean, I think the Wachowskis were really interested in the philosophy of their film. I mean, if you go back to all that uh, you know, behind the scenes stuff and you read the philosophers they brought in to be, you know, consultants and the, what they were reading. I know they were listening to John Adams music. I know they were deeply, you know, enriching their minds with all kinds of stuff. Um, so I would be surprised if it didn't sound the same. I mean, look at their scores that they've had in their other films. They always like the big orchestra. You know, you got Jupiter Ascending, you got uh, uh, Speed Racer. These are big orchestra scores. They don't tend to deviate from that um so i wouldn't be surprised if they they went with you know the same kind of sound again um now if the production houses had a crack at it you know if if disney was in charge of this or if you know whatever i think i think it would be more synthy and and uh a little more blade runner 2049 kind of thing going on than uh than what we got in 1999 but i i just think with the wachowski's directing it would have been pretty much what we have uh, now. Interesting. What about you, Eric? Uh, yeah, I had a thought. Now I'm going to pick up on that. If the Wachowskis were directing, because I wasn't thinking about it that way. Um, be- I'm going to first address the Wachowskis. And I'm just wondering whether, man, it's so weird to think that the matrix doesn't exist because then who would they be working with? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> And yeah, it's, right. it's it, would it be Chikino or would it be somebody else? Because they established a relationship with Davis before the Matrix Unbound and then brought him in for this. And Davis had a very particular idea for what he wanted to write for this score along with the Wachowskis. But Davis had immersed himself in this music in the past, studied it, understood it. He might have been the only composer at the time that could have pulled this score off. Mm-hmm. Um, I, look, I maybe Goldenthal. I could, yeah, I could see him uh, pulling that off. Yeah, I, I just, hmm, you know, because I've heard some of, you know, you hear some of his more serious action scores, and they still sound a bit wacky and weird. And <laughs> and and it, it's like, um, you know, although SWAT's pretty freaking good, like Final Fantasy. That's- Final, yeah, fine. I'm see, it's Final Fantasy is more. I mean, that's really more. It's more melodic. It's big bombast, big chords. And and if they went with Goldenthal, I'd be really excited with it. Even if they redid The Matrix now with Goldenthal, I'd be really excited by it. So if the Wachowskis were working on it, I'm sure they would expect something similar. Just who would be writing the score? Mm-hmm. And the fallout with Davis, I mean, that's just a whole other you know, can of worms. And, and it's it's like, wow, how in the world did that happen? That's like Steven Spielberg saying, you know, screw you, John Williams, after, you know, Last Crusade. 
what a bizarre situation. But I think that if the Matrix was made today, then it all depends on who the director is and who they would pick as composer and whether they have the same type of uh, philosophical ideas and whether they are just as immersed in that kind of atonal postmodernist music. Um, because the Wachowskis were, were looking for something different. And, and with Davis, he was looking for something different to write in that style as well. And just, again, he didn't really have that chance to explore it in the past. So it was just really perfect timing in 1999 for both the Wachowskis and, and Don Davis. You know, and it, it was a, it was a big risk for Warner brothers to exactly. give the Wachowskis that, and, and that so like, film. Yeah, the fact that, you know, they had so much time to, for the post-production and to go into it and make sure the script is right. And then, and then just try out all these new effects that had never been realized before. Like it was very much star Wars, you know, star mm-hmm. Wars were mm-hmm. making it up on the go. And they did it with with the Matrix, and I and I think that just like Star Wars took a chance with the score, the Wachowski took a chance with the score on Davis, and it just all kind of worked out. So today, um, I mean, you need visionary directors uh, to work on something like this, and that's the other thing is what's going to surprise us now. And I just don't think you'd have that special feeling of seeing something like the Matrix if it was almost the exact same movie made today, I just don't know what new they could bring to the table that would make you go, wow, I've, I've never seen that before. And it, maybe it would have to be like a, I tell you, I tell VR you how they could experience. do it. I tell you how they could do it. If they took all of the old actors that we know and love now, you know, uh, Donald Sutherland, uh, all of them, and then made them look younger and they were in the new matrix and it was believable. That would be fantastic. That oh, would shock coming. us. That would shock that's us. We're like, I've it's never seen this. Reality. I've we're never seen there. this before. <laughs> yeah. We're almost there. I'm totally um, joking. But, <laughs> but, it's but just, that will happen. It was just lightning in a bottle. This one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, it's, it's just, hard to say too, because what we our our movie going experience is so impacted by the Matrix in 1999, as the industry was, and right. it's so seeped into all kinds of movies that we'd have to take all that out right. potentially, yeah, and and then come into this fresh, and that's hard to unwind that. True, once I it's mean, already happened, and it's like being back in 1999, going, you know, we've all seen Star Wars. What else are they going to do? And we've all seen Jurassic <laughs> Park. They cannot improve on that. I mean, there's no way right. that someone could wow us like that in the theater again. So it's just yeah. nowadays. It's like, what is that thing? What's that one thing that they can do? Someone will find it. I oh, mean, sure. whatever yeah. whatever the constructs are that we have now that we're used to, someone will be able to take that and turn it on its head and they're gonna give add, us They're going to add something. smell. Smell to the theater. Oh. And you can smell. <laughs> like, can you imagine There's Avatar? You can smell the it. And those There's Avatar rides, that Avatar ride at Walt Disney World is pretty amazing. Those 4D <laughs> rides that you can smell stuff, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, cool. I wouldn't have wanted I to smell the I matrix. Smell I just want to tell you, I just would not. Because we jumped like into the trash thing, you know, and then it goes right. It would smell like steak. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I do not want to smell the matrix or most any other movie. I don't want to smell that ship. <laughs> oh yeah, the Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar? No way. <laughs> No, Ooh. or or smell the pod that he was in before he pops yeah, out. That. Yeah, <laughs> the little womb. <laughs> yeah, not or just getting 
sloshed out into that. Oh no! (laughs) He was reborn. (laughs) Philosophical rebirth. Yeah, yeah. I don't know either. If the Wachowskis were doing it, I don't know. I don't know if they would go for Don Davis or for that type. I mean, they worked with Reinhold Heil, and I guess Tom Tickver was on that too. Cloud Atlas. That's right. Um, Of course, uh, Giacchino. I don't know, but I sure would like to think that they would and they would give us something like this. Because if someone did a, did a score like that right now, we would still be wasn't somewhat surprised. I, I'm trying to remember clearly. I, I I haven't listened to it in a while, but wasn't Marianelli's score for V for Vendetta? Didn't it have a little bit of this in it? A little bit of a dystopian sort of pipe of... Yes. It, yeah, it felt like um, it felt like yes. a mix of that and, and some of the stuff that you know Zimmer was doing in Batman. Okay. Um, a less aggressively so. Okay. It was still very big. Yeah, still very mm-hmm. you know noticeable. Like E.B. Reborn is. Geez, yeah, that's an amazing piece of music ever composed. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he could be another one. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that about does it for our twenty-year reminiscence of the matrix and Don Davis's unforgettable score. How often do you guys return to listening to that once a year, a few times a year, all the time, not very often, not very yeah, often once a year, yeah. about once a year, but I find myself going yeah. back like Re- reloaded was one that the original album was on constant repeat. And literally it was just like, well, that's done. That's symphonic squeeze finished. Let's go do this again. Uh, you know, my hard <laughs> <go home> and <laughs> ridiculous and uh but i love revisiting these and and they're just it's just so great to experience them there's always something new to find in these scores Mm -hmm. and apparently i mean like the 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 deluxe edition from verez isn't even complete there's missing stuff it's edited Mm -hmm. in a weird way so it's like i'm sure there's something new release that's going to come out someday um that would have been a good time yeah it would have been um, who knows? I mean, I don't know whether Verez owns this one in perpetuity or not, but, um, all right, but it's just, yeah. it's, yeah, I love, I love it. I love revisiting it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, we'd love to know if you love revisiting it or re-listening to it or re-watching it. Let us know what you think about The Matrix and Don Davis' score. Do you still listen to it to this very day? Does it still impact you like it did 20 years ago? Uh, you can let us know by sending us an email to soundcast at tracksounds.com. Use our SpeakPipe widget or hit us up on Twitter at Audio Soundcast. Dane, how can people find and follow you and ask to borrow your book? <laughs> First of all, go to omnimusicpublishing.com and find that book because it's still out there and it's amazing. Every composer should own it. Um, and again, shout out to my buddy Tim Rodier. Um, he's he's done one for uh, Back to the Future, Batman, Danny Elfman's Batman. You can get that in full score. Silverado, get that. Mm. He had Edward Scissorhands. I think that's sold out now. Um, but so many out there. And he just did The Wizard of Oz, the entire thing. Mm. All oh, the nice. songs included. So um, he's, he's nice. doing great stuff. But you can find... Follow me if you follow the White Rabbit to Dane WalkerMusic.com or find me on Twitter at Maestro Dane um, or just put Dane with Walker and Music and uh, you won't find the Oracle, but you will find me. <laughs> Eric, how can people find and follow you? And 
how many shows do you have that feature the Matrix in it? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. One or two, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, uh, you can find me at Sound Radio on Twitter, Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and uh, CinematicSound.net for the radio show. As for the Matrix on the radio show, I know Reloaded is played a couple of times because I did feature it on my Best of the New Millennium. Um, I don't know whether I featured my 10-minute suite that I cut down from the Matrix on my you know, custom suite show. But I think back in 1999, I mean, geez, yeah, I played it quite a bit. Um, I mean, I was known as the Star Wars guy, but then once uh, Matrix came out, I played that all the time on the show on FM radio. For like two months until it was, Phantom Menace came yeah. out. <laughs> and, and, and that was it, right? You know, it's... <laughs> but Reloaded. Reloaded uh, Reloaded Revolutions. Jeez, man, that's that's just one heck of, a, heck of a good night if you're playing those back-to-back. And back. Sure is. Sure is. All right. Um, you can find and follow me on Twitter at C. Coleman, um, if you so choose to. And that's going to wrap up episode 137, our 20th anniversary revisit of The Matrix. Thank you so much for listening. And until our next episode, we want to say... 